Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories. Dear six-year-old Joni, as you navigate the roller coaster emotions and events of the next few decades, here are three things not to waste time stressing about and three pieces of advice that may help. Number one, do not stress about never being allowed to pierce your ears. Eventually your parents will allow it and you will have enough time to wear beautiful earrings daily. You'll never look back. Number two, do not stress that your younger sister learns to read several years before you do. Eventually both of you will be great readers and no one will talk about how she learned to read before kindergarten and you didn't read well until third grade. Number three, do not stress that your hair will never be curly. In the 1980s, those with big hair achieved rock star status. You will never have big hair. And asking your mom for a home perm over the kitchen sink is a bad idea every time. (laughs) Now for some advice. Your parents are right. Learning to play the piano is important for singers. Commit right now to practicing the piano 20 minutes a day. Yes, singing is so much more fun. Just trust the older you on this, really. Number two, little Joni's brain is different. You have ADHD. Growing up in the 1980s, not many people will be talking about ADHD, especially in little girls. And when you are finally diagnosed after college, it will be painful. But ride out that wave of pain and shame. Your ADHD means you have to work harder and differently at things than most people. For example, learning to read but eventually you will come to celebrate your creative neurodiversity and ADHD brain, I promise. Number three, your dating life in your 20s is gonna have lots of ups and downs, you'll survive. Do not waste any time being in love with people that aren't in love with you. And don't make Spencer Steinman wait five years before dating him. He ends up being a really wonderful part of your life. Sincerely, 42-year-old Joan. Joan, I feel like you can totally tell that you are a teacher, writer, just how organized you were in your outline format. I love it. That just made me so happy. And I am so excited to be able to talk to you today. Thanks, Liz. I'm so excited to talk to you too and be a part of your awesome podcast. Today on the podcast, I have Joan Steinman. She is amazing. She's a mother of three. She's been a high school choir teacher for 15 years, and she also used to teach German. She has many talents, and right now she is writing a musical about an autistic boy who's in high school, and his sister makes a map for him, and the musical is called Solve for X. Today we're talking all about Joan and her music career and how she got interested in music and how she started the musical. She is fascinating and super interesting and I know you will just love her. 
I met Joan through Nancy Major. She is the one who did the Color My Cookie podcast a few weeks back and she introduced me to her sweet friend Joan and she is really outstanding. I am so excited for you to listen to her story. I loved how you were talking about practicing the piano and how you love to sing. So can you tell us a little bit about how how did you know you first loved to sing? I, my parents sing. My mom plays the piano really well, and my dad has a really beautiful voice. And so we grew up singing as a family. And I think the way they tell it, I, I learned to sing and talk at the same time, just little family songs. And when I was, I think, eight, my parents took me to an opera for the first time. And I thought, wow, they are singing this whole story and on stage and costumes. And I definitely want to be an opera singer. So I, you know, that's pretty unusual for a little eight-year-old to want to be an opera singer. But I think I knew that I really loved singing because everyone in my family likes to sing. But I think that I knew I loved singing more than most people when I met Smith Shumway. And he's a really cool guy with a fascinating story and a significant disability, which we're going to be talking about disabilities later on in, in, you know, as we progress through this podcast. And so I think starting out with Smith is a, is a really good way to get us into it. So when I was six to nine, I was living in Omaha, Nebraska, and my, my dad was a medical student. And across the street from us lived some dear family friends, the Milmonts, the Shumway Milmonts. And their grandpa would come visit every so often. And his name was Smith. And I loved Smith so much because he would play the harmonica and sing with me. So, but the thing about Smith that really is remarkable is that he was blind. He was blinded in World War II. He was one of the first U.S. troops that landed on the beaches of, on Omaha Beach in Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944, when he was 22 years old. And he was fighting against the German army in France. And the next month in July of 44, he stepped on a landmine and was severely injured and lost his sight. So, Wow, I can't believe he survived. Yeah, it is really remarkable that he survived. He was very, very injured. He spent three years in hospitals in the United Kingdom and then later in the United States. And nurses told him that they'd never seen so much shrapnel in a body before. And in fact, pieces of shrapnel, he said, would work. they worked their way out of his body for the next 50 years, tiny little specks of, of metal that had been in the mine. I know. His vision for his life had to change. He had he'd wanted to go to medical school and he had wanted to do, you know, other things. He you know, he wrote about how on the way home from England he saw other other war veterans that were missing arms and legs and he thought, you know, I can still I can still hear and I can walk and I really have it good. And so he went home and he married his childhood sweetheart and he said to her, if you will match the socks and drive the car, then I will, I will do the rest. And they had eight children and he was, he was a, he was a pioneer in the 
blind educational field. And he, he really did. A, he had a remarkable life. And that was before I met him. But the thing I remember about him was that he would sing with me all the time. He played his harmonica and he would just sing all kinds of songs. You are my sunshine, all those kind of things with his grandkids, too. But I loved singing so much that every day I would go over to his house. Well, where his daughter lived, where he was visiting. And I would ask can that old blind man come out and play? <laughs> I do remember the first time I said that, I remember, you know, his daughter, Gloria, my mom's best friend, just dying of laughter. Like she just was like, she just laughed so hard. She bent over and had to like close the door for a second. She was laughing at this little six-year-old who asked her, you know, that old blind man can come out and play. And I remember thinking, oh no, I've said something terribly wrong. Like, oh no, or maybe he can't play or I've done something wrong. But anyway, she sent him out or brought me in or something. And then Smith and I just sang a lot together. And I think, I think that was when I realized, wow, I, I mean, there were like other kids singing for 10 minutes with us, but now I'm the only one who's been singing songs with this blind man for an hour on the porch. So that's when I first decided that, oh, singing really is it's one of my loves in life. Well, that's a really sweet story. And what a remarkable man. And that he would sit and take that time to to sing with you. So so it sounds like you grew up in Omaha. I No, we moved around a lot. My dad was in the military for a while. So I lived a lot of different places. But Omaha was where I went to kindergarten through third grade. And so kind of those early formative years were there. Tell us a little bit about what you were like as a kid. You mentioned a little bit about how you had ADHD and that impacted when you learned how to read and things like that. So maybe tell us a little bit more about what that was like for you as a kid and how that's impacted your life now. I was creative and I was energetic and I was emotional, but I was also kind of a little bit naughty. Like I remember not wanting to do anything my parents said, anything. <laughs> and I I didn't even talk to my parents about this until recently when I had an old, my oldest daughter is a lot like me and I was complaining to my mom, <laughs> just kind of sharing some of my struggles and she She's gotten a lot better now, but she was like, aha, I always wished you would have a daughter like you. I think I was tricky. Apparently, I was diagnosed with oppositional <laughs> defiant disorder, which is, you know, something that I don't know, I, I think I grew out of. I mean, I definitely, you know, can can follow orders now. But I know exactly what that is. I have a child that got diagnosed with that exact same thing. Okay, so, so you know. Yes. Okay. Yes. I had my struggles for sure. And I definitely had ADHD, but not the hyperactivity so much as the dreaminess and the special interest that would focus me for hours, but then things that I didn't want to focus on, I, I wouldn't. And, and, you know, a lot of people can say those kind of things, but when you, when you really study ADHD, that neurodivergence versus neurotypical brain, like there really is a difference. Like, for example, I didn't learn to read well until I was in third grade and I just remember thinking oh reading is so boring and and I had this little younger sister I have four younger sisters but one one the one just younger than me was good at everything I mean, she was good at everything piano and reading and she was just so smart and I was always like the energetic one and she was the you know the smart studious one so we are dear friends now but that was kind of that was a little bit of my childhood right there. Yeah. And I'm sure that was really hard 
to have your younger sister be good at all these things because typically that's supposed to be the older sibling that can do all the things before the younger sibling. Yes. I had to get over that really quickly. So how do you feel music had an impact on you growing up? Music was always really calming and wonderful. Part of my childhood, we lived in Germany and we had to drive a long way to go to school or church. We lived in a tiny little village and we had to drive into a nearby city that wasn't so near. It was, you know, 40 minutes away um, on the Autobahn. And we I, we would fight all the time as siblings, I guess. Um, so my parents made us sing just for, at, for, for the whole trip. We would just pick turns. Uh, we would take turns picking songs and we had all these family songs that we would sing. So music was a way of really calming and settling situations. It was also something that I knew I loved and I, I knew I was good at. Not to say that I didn't like I was born a perfect singer by any means. I don't I really don't think I was. And in fact, I'm the oldest of seven, but there's three girls right in a row. And I think of the three of us, the three first girls in my family, I think the third one, my sister Arwen, I think she probably had the most natural talent as a singer. Obviously, I, you know, I studied voice for years and years. And so I've, I've become better. But like, as far as raw talent, you know, I don't I don't know how much I had as a kid, but I knew I loved it. And I worked on it. And I think if you haven't studied singing before, well, I know it seems to a lot of people like something magical that you're just either born with or you're not. And I am on a, I will spend my life trying to educate people that you can learn how to sing if you want to, and you can get really good if you want to. Not everyone's going to sing at the Met but everyone can improve as a singer and get better at it. I just loved it so much that I spent hours learning how to sing, learning how to harmonize, things like that. So it was definitely a wonderful and calming part of my life that gave me a lot of confidence and really carried me through my childhood into my into my teenage years too. I love that. You know, you were explaining that you were made a little difficult as a child and maybe a little bit naughty. And I think that sometimes these little kids that come into the world and they have so much energy and they have so many ideas and things like that all bottled in them. Sometimes having one thing that they're really good at can give them the confidence to kind of keep going in the other places too. But I think that sometimes those little kids can get a bad rap because they're, you know, maybe not what parents or like teachers or different people would would consider kind of the ideal child to like just listen and and be obedient and do what they say but I think that um as adults and getting older I think those creative minds and bring I think that they serve them very well but sometimes in little bodies can be a little more difficult yes I like how you said that in little bodies can be more difficult yes that's very true and I can relate to that as having had a little body once and also raising little bodies. <laughs> that's, that's just what I keep telling myself with my children. I'm like, they, I'm these personalities will serve them well as adults, but they sometimes can be a little challenging as little humans with all the opinions and things. So <laughs> tell us a little about your current family and your job. I have three children and they are really wonderful. Two girls and a boy. 
and my husband and I have been married I, like 13 years, I think. And we are very happy with our little family. I've taught high school for 15 years. Taught I've taught choir. And then before I had baby number two, I taught choir and German. So when I had to make a choice about what to teach part-time, I knew I wanted to stay teaching. Teaching German was fun, but teaching choir is really fun. So I chose that. And I have been teaching part-time now, which is a really wonderful schedule for a mom to be able to work. I work two days and then three days every other week. So it's, it's really beautiful. That's awesome. I listened to another podcast that you had done and talking about choir. I just seeing how passionate you are about helping these kids and teaching them. I'm just really admiring you for that. And so teaching choir, you have access to all these teenagers that are in high school. How do you feel like music helps them? It really helps them regulate emotions. Teenagers especially are learning how to navigate, you know, the end of their childhood, the beginning of their adulthood, hormonal changes in their body, just a lot of things happen in their teenage years. Those those changes and, and emotional changes can be very overwhelming, but if you are singing, the emotion, the emotions in singing rise and swell in, in a way that you can, you can channel all of that energy into singing. So, well, it's not socially acceptable to be, you know, schizophrenic in your moods with people, right? Even though you might feel that way, but your, your emotions as a singer, you can be singing a really intense, uh, angry, song one minute and then you can you know switch to a lullaby and you know it has a it's a really really healthy way to channel emotions that are not unhealthy but big just big emotions it really helps them channel big emotions I like that I never thought of music having that impact I remember as a teenager thinking every song totally applied to me (laughs) everything was oh yes this is about my life but I like that that it's a healthy way of channeling our emotions do any of your students remind you of yourself as a teenager yes sometimes they do and it's never like the put together ones all polished it's always the ones that are like running late and have lots of good ideas, but not as much follow through and are maybe a little flaky, probably talking all the time and sometimes tardy to class. Uh, Those are the ones that remind me of myself. And I hope that I can help them. I try to help my teenagers understand when it's a big deal and when it's not, because sometimes, you know, they get a lot of anxiety because everything feels like a big deal. And some things really are a big deal and some things are less of a big deal. So like, for example, I don't give as many quizzes in choir, but I used to give a lot of like little vocabulary quizzes when I taught German. And I just, I tried to stress to my students, like, I really want you to do well on this. I am happy to see that you know all this vocabulary word, all these food vocabulary words. But if you don't, you are still going to have an okay life. Like this is not going to ruin your entire life if you fail this quiz. It's hard to know where to channel 100% of your effort. And that's a skill that adults definitely have to have to develop. But, you know, children, they're still learning how to do that. And I'm, you know, one of my goals is try to help them know how to do that best. That totally reminds me of Nancy, which is 
how I met you through Nancy of saying that she learned that not everything requires 100% of your efforts. That's right. She did say that. Oh, I'm glad to be sounding at all like Nancy. She is wonderful. (laughs) If you could say something to your teenage self, what do you think you would say? Take good care of your body. Do not sleep in. Do not stay up late. Learn not to procrastinate and (laughs) eat less sugar. That's good advice. I know. I felt like as a teenager, I just had this mentality of your body is what it is. And I just don't think I really learned, oh, the exercise and eating actually does have a big impact on how you feel and how you look. (laughs) Yep. Well, tell us a little bit about how your job brings you joy and meaning in your life. It's so wonderful to have a, a job where you sing all day with people. It is just really lovely. I enjoy singing with people at all levels. I love my beginning choirs that are still learning how to, you know, match pitch maybe or sing, you know, harmony with each other. I love that. I love being there at the cusp of their learning process. And I I love also my advanced choirs when they have, you know, mastered really hard things and are, are singing beautiful, intricate harmonies. That is also really fulfilling. So it's just very fulfilling to sing with people all day. And I feel really, really lucky to be able to do that. That is really awesome that you're able to do that. And I just think even just talking to you for these few minutes, it's really important for high schoolers to have a positive, happy role model as an adult that just can, you know, be there for them. And I'm sure that you've impacted so many people's lives in in more ways than you probably even will ever know. But I think of some of my favorite high school teachers and just how they were just so helpful during those those years of my life and just felt like they just were really on my team and how much that meant to me. And so I I admire you for the work that that you're doing. But I would love for you to tell us about where you got the idea to write a musical and tell us a little bit about what it what it's about and everything. I actually got the inspiration to write a musical from my students that wrote a musical and produced it and cast it and performed it like all while they were in my class and while they were doing all of my assignments in my choirs, my choir concerts and things like it was very, it was very inspirational. And I went to their musical and I remember thinking, what am I doing with my life? Like, how am I being creative at all? Like, look at this. They are doing amazing things. And I remember thinking, I should write a musical. But of course, I'm busy. And so I didn't. My daughter was in kindergarten, either around the same time or shortly after. And she her little kindergarten class all did a kindergarten opera where they all sang the whole story and it was very fun and just, you know, it had light piano accompaniment and some fun costumes. But I remember thinking, oh, that was really fun. They got to sing the whole story like an opera. And I remember thinking I could write something like that. But then also I don't have a lot of time, so I didn't do it. And then the summer of 2018, my administration that I I really love, I teach at a little tiny charter school in South Jordan, Utah called Paradigm. And 
our administration that I really love and respect, they gave us this awful assignment that I thought was, I thought it was awful to write a 500 word essay, which that's, you know, that's pretty long about our educational philosophy and reflections on some of the summer reading assignments. They assigned us some books to read to. And I, I thought, okay, well, I can do that because I, you know, I went to college and I can, I can come up with an essay and be done. But then they said, you have to spend the next year in peer review groups, you know, with your colleagues, perfecting this essay and working on it to make sure that, you know, it's publishing quality uh, by March. And they wanted us to, to grow and stretch. And, and that, that is admirable. But I just thought, I do not want to do that at all. So, I have my family and all these other things and right. I'm trying to juggle the last thing I want to do is take time to write. Right. And I, well, also, if it was going to have to be good, if it was going to have to be something that I would spend a year reviewing, like it wasn't just something I could get over with and be done. Like I had, I had, you know, if it was going to take a year of my life, I wanted to make it something that was significant to my life. So around the same time, and I'd never written any music before that. I should, I should say that too. So I'd never written any music other than like music theory assignments when I was in college. And that same summer, my friend's father, who is a poet and a writer, he had written really beautiful lyrics and asked me to set it to music um, for a submission to a, a hymn book that, you know, was being produced. And I said, okay, well, I'll try it because, you know, that sounds kind of fun. And I've, I've haven't written anything ever. So I, I, you know, I think I could do that. Um, and it was so fun. And I wrote the song for him and submitted it. And, and you know, it, it was, it was okay. It has some mistakes, but you know, it was, it was not bad. And, but I remember thinking, oh, that was really fun to come up with a melody and, and play it. And then hear my, I was working on it a lot when I was at my sister's house and her little, she has teenagers, her little teenagers were walking around singing it. And I thought, wow, it's, kind of fun to have people singing your song. And, and then came the assignment to do the essay. And I thought, you know what, now's the time. Instead of doing the essay, I might as well write a musical and spend a year in peer review groups with my colleagues that I really respect, um, you know, getting feedback on something that's worthwhile. And so I will write a musical instead of doing an essay. So I asked my boss, I said, can I write a musical instead? And he said, uh, yeah, if you want to spend a thousand more hours than the assignment is called for. And I said, I think I do. And I did. And I do because it's, it's much more, even though it does take so much more time, it's much more fulfilling. And in the end, that is, um, that's, that's a better quality of life when you are doing something that is fulfilling rather than something just to get it, get it done. I love that. Yeah. When, before we were, before we started recording, you had asked me a little bit about how I started the podcast and everything. And I feel like there are weeks that it takes longer than I had originally anticipated, but I do love doing it. And so I feel like to me, it's worth it because I think that the people that I interview are amazing people. And so I want other people to be able to experience that. So if it takes me a little more time than I had anticipated to get it all edited and ready to go, then I think that that 
like I find more joy out of that. So I can relate to you in that sense. But I can't imagine coming up with a melody and everything. I think that that is just phenomenal. And it sounds like your whole life kind of has prepared you to be able to write this musical. So sorry, I kind of cut you off. So tell us about what your musical is about and how you got that idea. Okay. Um, it, it was a roundabout way, actually. So like I said, I wanted to write a musical and I've always loved maps. I love maps of all sorts, maps of the world, maps of cities. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I used to do a lot of backpacking and hiking and I got good at reading topographical maps and being able to tell elevations of things just by looking at different contour lines and all kinds of maps have always fascinated me. And then I went to a production of um, an opera called Moby Dick at Utah Opera. And they, I don't remember a ton about the opera, but I know that they had this amazing backdrop that was nautical themed and parts of it were a map. And I just remember looking up at the stage and thinking how beautiful it was to have a map on stage because I think maps are beautiful and thinking how fun it would be to have a musical that was all kind of based around a map. So it started with the map, but then I remember thinking, what kind of plot has a map in it? And then I was talking to my my friend who is a child psychologist and her oldest son is autistic. And she was telling me a little bit about the things that they do to help him um, prepare for new situations. So autistic brains get overly stimulated with new situations. And so if you're trying to help an autistic person, like one of the, one of the things that you can do for them is to create like a story where, you know, that here, this is what's going to happen when you go to the dentist. This is what's going to happen when you start driving. Um, this is the kind of thing that this is what's going to happen when you go to a new high school um, and they might have a map. So I thought, oh, that is perfect. I can have the map be for an autistic boy. Now, at the same time, um, I have a sister who is wonderful. Like I said, I have four sisters, but one of them is, she has not yet been diagnosed, but I believe that she is autistic and she is in the process of seeking a diagnosis now. But my relationship with her has always been a little too very rocky as I have my ADHD and her um, her particular particular ways and her and her you know possibly autistic brain have really clashed so as i um as i thought and thought about you know writing the musical i thought you know what you really need to explore this idea and learn about autism and i knew that it would be also really helpful in helping me heal this relationship that I had with my sister, um, the bad relationship. And, you know, this bad relationship is, is my fault, uh, almost completely because, um, you know, she is very wonderful, but she, but I, I would like to, I tortured her when I was younger and this is, you know, me being very human and real here and, um, torture. So like, for example, she is very particular about all the books on her shelf being like all in the right order or like all of her knickknacks on her dresser being like facing the same way. 
And mischievous little me would like go into her room and move a few books around. And then like it would drive her insane. And I would think, oh, it's so funny to get such a reaction from her. Right. So that, you know, that's that's that was like part of, you know, that's part of our issues. I was always trying to engage her in the wrong ways. And but I didn't know what autism was. I didn't I didn't even cross my mind that she was autistic because I think my only view of of being autistic was like from the movie Rain Man. And, you know, yeah. my sister is, is nothing like that. And there are some similarities, but but uh, that doesn't mean that everyone that is autistic is going to share the same traits. But she she does have several things that are pretty typical. So, for example, she uh, gets very overwhelmed in crowds. She doesn't like crowds. She has a lot of sensory issues to food. She doesn't, there's, you know, there's foods that she likes and she is happy eating those like 10 things the rest of her life. And she really likes structure and order and order. And I, I like flying by the seat of my pants a lot. And so, you know, the things that, the things that were important to me as, as an adult and the ways that I had grown and, and changed, I was always comparing myself and thinking, why, why can't she do that? Why isn't she like that? And why does she need this? And just kind of resentful. And, and like I said, I hope your listeners are gentle with me because I've really come around. I've really come around from this. This is where I started. And this was the beginning of this journey that I'm, I'm really growing as a human here. Anyhow, when I was a teacher, we had some training on how to help autistic students. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, that kind of sounds like my sister. And I'd never really considered that. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, wow, this is possibly her and you, meaning me, you have been a big jerk. I knew that writing Solve for X and doing all the research would help me understand her better, also help me understand my autistic students. I've definitely had autistic students in the past and currently that, um, that I, you know, I, I have helped some of them. I know I have, and then other others, I haven't been as helpful, but all the research that I'm doing with solve for X really helps me to be more understanding of neurodivergency, different brains, different learning systems, and really appreciating the differences, the difference that autistic people, like what they have to offer. And I can talk a little bit more about that in a sec, but basically that, that is the story of how I came to center the, the musical on autism. And the, the main, the focus character is Weston. He's an autistic boy navigating high school with a treasure map as a comforting stimulant. His older sister, Lottie, is a junior in high school, he's a freshman, and she gives him a treasure map. So everywhere on the treasure map corresponds to actual high school. So like the gym is Pirate's Cove, and the library is the Rainbow Lagoon, and the boys' bathroom is Half Moon Bay, and funny things like that, so that when he comes into high school, he has context for it already. I love that, and I love that you kind of were able to use your upbringing and your sister to be able to kind of heal that relationship and use this. But I, I love that you are going to be able to educate so many people about autism and as well as entertain them. I can't wait to see your musical. I think it's going to be amazing. I've listened to 
one of your songs and I think it's awesome. But tell us a little bit about the writing process. What do you wish you would have known when you first started writing? I might be able to answer that at the end, but I don't know now because there's just so much that I don't know. Okay, so a lot of my a lot of my research has been in, you know, autism. So like autistic people. And I I keep saying I keep saying autistic people and I just I should probably make a little note of that to your listeners. So the autistic adult community has recently within the last I don't know, two decades or so, been more vocal as they've they've found a voice and and that's really wonderful. Not a lot was known about autism, you know, in the earlier century and not a lot of studies were done and and it was, you know, it was kind of a new, newer studied thing. So autistic adults generally prefer to be called autistic rather than a person with autism. Because being autistic to them, and I think this is really beautiful, and if I were to have an autistic child, I would definitely want to help them understand this too. Being autistic is is not bad. It is, it is a different way that your brain works. It is a totally different way of processing information. And it is not a bad thing and not something you need to cure yourself of. So autistic adults, you know, are really proud of the fact that they are autistic they realize this they realize that they have challenges and disabilities in in a lot of the way that the world is set up for neurotypical people but they you know they like who they are and i, I think that's a really beautiful and wonderful thing so i will generally tend to, to tend to refer to people as autistic people rather than a person with autism um, the same way deaf people like to be called deaf rather than you know, a, a person hard of hearing or, or things like that. And I, I think that that is starting to be more known, but that's not something I knew at the beginning of my research. So it might be something that's also new to your listeners. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that that's important to to learn. And back in August, we did two episodes on autism and learning more from both my friend Sky and my aunt Amy talking about them raising autistic children, I feel like was so eye-opening to me. And I am really grateful for them sharing about that. And I just, I think that it's so beautiful how you were talking about how this is not something that needs to be cured, but these autistic people are wonderful blessings and they think differently than us, but it doesn't mean that it's bad. And I think we use the word having a disability. It sounds so negative, but I think, you know, anyone who has been around, around somebody that is autistic, I think that they've felt very blessed by them because of their sweet personalities and the way they see the world and a lot of their gifts and how talented and smart they really are. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely something that is starting to get talked about more and and needs to be talked about more. So, I think most people that begin researching autism are usually it's probably largely two categories. So, you know, people, parents who find out that their, you know, their child is autistic 
And so then they suddenly are, you know, trying to navigate that and figure out what that means. And so they're doing all kinds of research on being a parent of an autistic child. So I think that's probably a large category of people that are doing a lot of autism research. And then I think the other category is is people who are diagnosed as autistic themselves. And, you know, that can be, you know, teenagers, adults, um, and they 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 probably know that something has been different. Like there's been something different about them. They felt different than others their whole life. And then they they get a di- an autism diagnosis and they're like, aha, this makes sense. This is why things are overwhelming to me. Or this is why I am so fascinated and can spend 12 hours a day learning about this, you know, my special interest. And I, I think that when they can understand that that is, you know, a good thing and, and just a, a part of who they are, that that's really helpful. And I know just based on my research, so a lot of autistic people have really focused special interests that, you know, can be, you know, almost superpowers, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that every autistic person has them. And, and I know that some of them get offended when like, well, what's your superpower? You know, this guy can memorize uh, anything and this guy can, you know, you know, this autistic person. So, Um, so I try to be careful about that. The other thing that is, I think the most tricky is I've been navigating, learning how to talk about autism, talk about autistic people as, as, you know, not being autistic. The, the, probably the hardest thing has been learning how to avoid using functioning labels. So I'm sure you've heard the terms high functioning and low functioning. Those really resonate with neurotypical people. We think, oh, that is very easy to understand. Like this person is high functioning because they, you know, are an autistic lawyer or an autistic pilot. And this person is low functioning because they are a nonverbal autistic person, right? So autistic people, for the most part, are really trying to move away from those functioning labels. Those functioning labels were as I understand it now. So like I said, I'm in still in, you know, I'm in the beginning of my research process and I might learn something differently next week. But from what I understand now, those functioning labels were developed by Austrian scientist Hans Asperger. And Hans Asperger was working in Nazi occupied Vienna, right at the, you know, in the 40s and 30s and 40s as a doctor. And he was one of the first people to diagnose autism and he had to decide now remember the nazis this is this is a darker part of human history and the nazis were doing horrible things they were killing homosexuals and people with down syndrome and part of dr asperger's job was to decide who would live and who would die so of course in history he's you know he's a very polarizing character but he he sent some people to die and he decided that others were high enough functioning that they could function in society. So that is where the beginning, that's the origin of using high functioning and low functioning labels. But autistic people are really trying to move away from those. And I I try to be respectful of that as I write about, you know, as I write Solve for X and as I'm researching and I try to be more inclusive. So Moving with like uh, just the understanding that, you know, everybody, everyone, all of us have high high functioning, low functioning days that an autistic person 
may appear high functioning and may appear low functioning, but that doesn't, that, that really isn't an indication of their abilities or worth in a lot of ways. So it is definitely been a learning process, but those are a few of the things that I've learned as I've really delved into the autistic adult community and tried to hear this voice that is emerging about how they'd like to be treated and how they'd like to be represented in media. Well, that's really interesting. I I love the background on what was the guy's first name? The Aspergers. Uh, Hans Asperger. Yeah, he. Yeah. Yeah. Because I I know that when I went to school, I studied psychology, and I remember them just saying Aspergers is no longer. You know, they were like talking about the spectrum instead of like taking away Aspergers, the name. But I had no idea who he was, and I feel like putting it in that context really brings to home what you're saying if you're saying high or low functioning and so thanks for sharing that with us and I feel like we have so much to learn from you and you know as you were saying that you're still in the learning process I was thinking we're going to just have to have you back on the podcast after your musical comes out so you can tell us all the things you've learned since then because I'm sure There'll be lots of new things. (laughs) Were there things that were challenging that you didn't foresee in writing a musical? And kind of tell us a little bit about the writing process. I don't even know how you start to come up with a melody out of thin air, because I feel like my brain can only do tunes that I've already heard. So I just am curious how you're even able to, to do that. So I ha- I have the story kind of outlined, but writing songs, you know, that's a different that's a different ballgame. So it is pretty easy for me to come up with a melody. Lots of things in music have been very very difficult for me, but coming up with different tunes and melodies and um, harm or harmonizing an established melody, those are things that I've they they just come a little bit easier to me. And I don't I don't know I I can always just come up with a a melody, a different one, one I've never heard, whether I'm humming it around the house or something. And I've been doing it for years, but I, I've never really written anything down until the summer of 18. I thought, oh, this is really fun. So I only have one song that's on the internet so far. I have about six or seven songs that are written, but one song is on the internet. So I'll, I'll kind of talk, and that that one's called A Scantron a Day Keeps All Learning at Bay. And I'll, I'll talk about that one later. But let me just tell you the general process of, of how, I, how I create a song. So like I said in my beginning letter to my younger self, like, don't quit the piano. So my mom was this amazing pianist. I always had the discipline to sit and learn it. It never was interesting to me. But, but it really is important as a musician to, you know, to learn the piano or to play the piano. So I can slaughter through, you know, basic songs and things, but some composers' fingers just, their fingers compose. Some composers, their fingers are the ones doing the composition, but my fingers don't work like that. However, I can think of melodies. So what I do is I take my phone and I record a melody into my phone. I've probably sung through it a few times, like, or find myself singing it, remembering it and singing it for a few days in a row before I think, oh, maybe this one's worth writing down. So I sing it into my phone and like, there've been plenty of times over the last few years that I'm like hiding in the pantry while my kids are like 
running around the house, sometimes trying to find me. And I'm like, I just got to get this into my phone really quickly to, you know, do a voice memo of this melody before I forget it. And then after I've done that, I take it and I, I listen to it. And if it's worth, if it's worth writing down, then I'll go to my computer and I'll write it in music notation software. Then at that point, I listen to it a few times. And like I said, my fingers don't naturally compose, but I do, I did study a lot of music theory in college when I studied vocal performance and just lots of music. I use my music theory background to, you know, create harmonies. If I know the melody well, then I can see, I can come up with a harmony in my head for it too. So that, that's kind of my process. I think one of the reasons I, I didn't ever compose is because I, I just felt like my fingers weren't the magical composition fingers that most people have. And so I just felt like, I, you know, who can write songs? But as a singer, as a singer, you can, you know, you can still write songs. So singing is my main instrument. And I have, I've practiced learning how to be a pianist. So do you come up with the melodies first and then you write the words or do you have the words kind of, I don't know, how do you, which order do you do it in? Or does it all come together at the same time? I usually come up with the melody and then the lyrics like like a, just a second after on my best songs. So the songs that I've written that I think are the best are the, are the you know, the most, that the will be the most successful and that I'll probably end up using in the musical. Those ones I usually write the music and the lyrics pretty close together. I love writing lyrics too. So I like... There's other songs that I have written that are just their only melodies, and I haven't put lyrics to those yet. But for the most part, I'm I feel like I'm most successful when I do them pretty much the same time. And do you feel like they come all at once, and then you have other times where they don't come to you, or is it just like if you sit down to write, things will come? If I sit down and force myself to write, things will come. Like I can always make it better it's sometimes worth taking a break and, and getting away from it. You know, sometimes if I'm singing it and working on it so much that I, I just get so sick of it and I start hating it just because I've heard it so many times. I'm so tired of it. So at that point, I, I need to take a break and pull back and then, you know, revisit it a little bit later. I did listen to your song, A Scantron a Day Keeps the Learning at Bay. And I know that Malcolm Gladwell got a hold of that song. Can you tell us that experience? Yes, this is a funny story. One of the one of the themes in the musical is going to be standardized testing, like how just kind of the questions about that. Yes, we need some way to gauge, you know, who's going to college and where you're going to get into college. But is a standardized test, is that really a good indication of, of someone's, you know, abilities? Or is that just an indication of, you know, someone's ability to take a test, not really what they know? And kind of along the same lines as that saying, like, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, you know, it'll feel like a failure its whole life. And so I was thinking about standardized tests in terms of like how my students were doing on them. And, and I started writing a song. I knew that I wanted the, like the walking baseline to be like the Scantron letters, A, B, C, D, E, you know? So I started out like A, B, C, D, and and then I, I added various other um, the various other lines that kind of all all come together, kind of like a fugue. So I was writing that while I was writing that I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell. Now he's he's the famous author 
of like the tipping point and outliers and talking to strangers. And he has a podcast called Revisionist History. And I was listening to his Revisionist History podcast season four. And he, in season four, he challenges his young assistant to a test to see who can do better on the LSAT, which is, of course, the entrance exams for law school. And then he does, a, and he he's Canadian, Malcolm Gladwell is from Canada. So this whole, Americans, we all grow up with, you know, standardized testing. That is just a part of school. That's just a part of life. That's what we do. But, you know, he's Canadian. So this is kind of fascinating for him that there wasn't as much emphasis in, in Canada as, as on standardized testing. So he was, he was fascinated by our American system. And the LSAT particularly is a timed test. So he explored on his podcast, like who who does well on the LSAT is, do you really want a lawyer who can breeze through things fast or do you want some, is it okay to have some, a, a lawyer who is slower processing and would, you know, maybe per, perhaps score lower on the LSAT, but, you know, be a really, really good lawyer. And so he kind of explored that. And I thought, I thought it, it was fascinating. Nothing else is more inspiring than listening to someone else be creative or someone else's idea, you know? So anyhow, I, I started, I was working on this song and so I, I, I added, he was very inspirational and I added, I added another melody line that was like, A-C-T, S-A-T, G-R-E, stop, M-C-A-T, and G-M-A-T, and L-C-A-T, and stop. And just kind of like had all these standardized tests in it. And, you know, then I had, I had various other lyrics and they all come, they all come together. But I finished the song and added a piano accompaniment to it. And then that was, you know, earlier in the year, like it was earlier in twenty. And then in 2019, I also was listening to his podcast and he was, Malcolm Gladwell was talking about how he was riding his bike around Manhattan. And I was thinking, oh, wait, I'm going to be in Manhattan with my choir students in February. And I thought I should send him my song and see if we can come sing it for him because he was so inspirational in helping me write it. And I, you know, who wouldn't want to be serenaded? And he, he, I was envisioning like, oh, we'll just like, ask him if we can come sing to him outside of a coffee shop. And it was a small choir. I only took like 20 students. So I was like, you know, the song's only three, three minutes long. So I had this idea, but I was nervous too. So I procrastinated about it. And we, we did go to New York in February of 2020, like minutes before the pandemic. So So lucky. So I, I procrastinated calling his people until the day we left. And then I, I called up in industries and I was like, hi, I'm a choir teacher from Salt Lake City, Utah. And I just, I have this song for Malcolm, but I don't know, like, can, can we talk to someone that could put me in touch with him or something? Oh, and I felt so silly, but I did it. And they, the, the lady was very nice. She's like, why don't you just send an email? And so anyway, I sent an email saying, hey, basically we have a song, coffee shop. Can we meet you? Three minutes long, 20 students, like, you know, we'd be honored. And they wrote back and they said, uh, thanks. The timing isn't going to work out, but let us know, you know, send us a recording. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I did, at least I'd put myself out there. That was like a, that was like a thanks, but no thanks. And you know, it's okay. But then, then as soon as we got back from New York seconds before the pandemic, because I think we got back on like February 27th or something, 28th. And like by March, sixth, all of New York was shut down with the pandemic. Anyhow, as soon as we got back, I got a follow-up email from Malcolm's producer saying, hey, 
Malcolm is really excited about your song. I had sent him the sheet music. So I sent him the sheet music, even though like I didn't have a recording. It wasn't recorded yet. He's really excited about your song. Can you send us a recording? And I was like, what? What? Like Malcolm Gladwell like has heard of me and my song. And I was like, yeah, I can come up with a recording. But it was, you know, it was ironic because I really wanted my students to sing it. My choir students, I taught it to them and they knew it. But I also knew that I had to get it to Malcolm's people fast before he lost interest. And the next time I was going to see my students, school was canceled because they were all taking the ACT. Of course, right? How ironic. Right. The irony. I know. This is like the song about the the ACT. Anyway, so instead, I convinced, uh, you know, three of my singer friends and recording artists to meet me at my school on Saturday, and we recorded it. And then we sent it to Pushkin Industries, and it was really exciting. I got an email back from Malcolm Gladwell, and I'll read it to you. So it was pretty exciting. He said, your song is genius and hilarious. I think Jacob, my producer, told you that we would love to play it with your permission. Also, I might want to chat with you on the phone to get the story of how it came about. Thanks so much, Joan. Keep writing songs! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Were you dying when he said that? I was dying. I was dying. I remember like coming home, like I got it when I was at work. I remember coming home and like just looking around and like, "Hi, kids! Like, oh, what are we gonna do? Like, I totally forgot to take my daughter to piano lessons that night, and I like nothing else matters, right? So excited! It was fun. It was really fun. Anyway, so. Then the pandemic came and I never, I didn't end up getting to talk to Malcolm on the phone, unfortunately, but his producer, Jacob, contacted me just a few weeks ago and said, with your permission, we really do want to use this in our season five bonus episodes of Revisionist History. We want to use your song and do we have your permission? And I said, of course. So I'm, I don't know when that's going to come out, but I'm, I'll be excited to hear it. That is amazing. Well, I just listen to the Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers book this year. And it was so fascinating. I feel like he is just a fascinating person. And it makes me like him all the more that he reached out to you. And I can't wait to listen to that podcast episode with your song. Thank you. Everybody that is listening, you got to look up her song. So while I'm thinking about it, why don't you tell us how can people listen to your music and kind of get updates on the music? Okay. So I have, I have a website. It's solveforxmusical.com. So you can definitely go there. Probably I, I put, I put the most information on Instagram. So solveforxmusical on my Instagram account. And the link to my Instagram is in my is in my on my website and I, I do the most updates there. I haven't recorded a lot yet. I need to, but it is expensive and it's hard to get singers all together. And so it's still in the early stages, but just to give, cause everybody wants to know when it's finished. And I, I don't know, but I have a, I have a goal. So I'd really like solve for X to be produced like on a stage with people singing it in April of 2022 um, to celebrate Autism Awareness Month. I think that would be really special to celebrate Autism Awareness Month, which actually I think should be renamed Autism Appreciation Month rather than awareness, because I think we need to appreciate our 
neurodiverse friends and the ways that they contribute to our society rather than just being aware of them. But awareness is good too. So I, that's my goal to have it, um, to have it be able to be produced by that point. Now musicals, as I, I've just read a few books about how to write them and I've talked to a few people who have, you know, done it, but so they, they tend to have like stages like workshop stage. So, so at that point it would probably be like in a workshop stage where, you know, revisions could still be made, but it was, you know, more of a polished draft than what I have now, which is just an outline and several songs and a few lines of dialogue. So I really do have a lot of work ahead of me, which is very daunting, but I'm also very committed and I'm really grateful for this journey and the ways that it is stretching me creatively and also emotionally as a human. Well, I just really admire you and you going for this dream of yours because I think it's so easy to make excuses when things are hard to just say, I don't have time for that. Like who has time to write a musical? Who has time to train for a marathon? Who has time to like do these big things like writing a book or doing these big projects? But I think really putting yourself out there and saying, I'm going to do this. I feel like I just really admire you. And I think you're amazing. Oh, thanks, Liz. Who has time to do podcasts? Like who has time to do that? Well, and the thing is, none of us really do have time. You just have to make time and the things that are important to you, you prioritize. And, you know, we all have time through our Instagram feed, but then we say we don't have time to do all these other things that bring us more meaning and joy. And so I think just making yourself start is a great a great way to do that. I'm sure it's not easy. Like you said, you had a, a lot of songs and things to still do, but I just, I can't wait to hear more of your songs and be able to see this show when it comes out. Well, I have one last question for you. And that's the question I ask everybody. And it's, if you could go back in time to any- My twenties were kind of crazy. Like I said, and mentioned earlier, And I remember singing in college, I had loved singing so much, but singing in college was a different experience for me. I I remember I majored in vocal performance and even though I really, I really wanted to teach choir, but all the, all the talented singers were, were majoring in performance. And anyway, I would go back and tell that girl, that young girl, like, it's okay not to love performing. I love singing so much, Liz. I love it. But I don't love performing. I love singing with people. I love the collaboration of it. I love being in choir. I love singing in trios or even duets. But I learned in college, um, I loved practicing on my own. And I love the technique that it requires to be a singer and to really train your voice like an instrument. But it always just sounded more fun to me when I was doing a duet or some kind of, you know, group where I was singing with people, that was always so much more appealing. And I remember thinking at the time, like, what's wrong with me? Like, why don't I want to be a soloist like everyone else? And I would go back and tell that girl, like, it's okay. You're a choir girl. And that's an okay and wonderful thing to be. I love it. I think it's easy to look at other people around us and think, why am I not interested in the same things as them? We need all sorts of different people. And if you weren't a choir girl, 
then you wouldn't be writing a musical, I don't think. Right, I wouldn't. And I'm I'm really grateful with the ways that that's blessing my life. Well, thanks again, Joan, for being on my podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise, it was such a pleasure. And yes, I hope we can do this again when Solve for X is Broadway bound. We'll do it. This is Liz Gardner. Thank you for listening to Letters to My Younger Self. I really appreciate all your support. If this episode helped you, please share it with a friend. Feel free to reach out if you have any recommendations for topics or people that you would like to hear in the next upcoming episodes. Thanks again for tuning in. Have a great week.